If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and for today's episode, I spoke to the Labour MP Rachel Reeves about her new book, Women of Westminster. We met at our studio in Bristol a few weeks ago to talk about the female politicians who have shaped the last hundred years of British politics. How have female MPs changed the face of British politics over the last hundred years? Well, a hundred years ago, when you had no women at all in Parliament, there were just lots of issues that weren't considered political issues, that weren't raised in Parliament. And it took having women in Parliament to change the political agenda, to force onto the political sphere issues which had been neglected by an all-male cosy club for far too long. And so in 1925, six years after the first woman took her seat in Parliament, the Equal Guardianship of Children uh, legislation was passed. And until 1925, mothers had absolutely no rights over their children whatsoever in the case of separation or divorce. The children were the property of their father. And Margaret Wintringham, the second woman to take her seat in Parliament, working together with Nancy Astor, the first woman to take her seat in Parliament, they introduced that legislation. Margaret Wintringham, when she spoke in favour of the bill, asked the male MPs to do a mental somersault and imagine themselves in the position where they desired the custody of their own child, but were denied it. But that's the point, really. Men had to make that mental somersault to put themselves in the position of women. And having women in Parliament meant that new issues were raised. How would you characterise the change that there has been over the last hundred years in terms of attitudes to gender in Parliament? 
Well, I think things have changed a huge amount. There are still challenges, though. There are still twice as many uh, male MPs as there are women MPs. But there's been an enormous change in the last 100 years. So 100 years ago, there were no women in Parliament. When I was born 40 years ago, there were just 19 women in Parliament. And today it's 209, 210, because we had a by-election a couple of weeks ago, um, out of 650. So that is transformational. If you take the case of Nancy Astor, when she took her seat in 1919, she said that her male colleagues would have rather had a rattlesnake in the chamber rather than her. And I think she was absolutely right because they didn't like the change that was that was coming, many of the male MPs. Winston Churchill once said to uh, Nancy Astor, and, and he had been a friend, he was a friend of the, of the Astors, that having a woman in Parliament was a little bit like having a woman walk into his bathroom when he had nothing to defend himself except for a sponge. And Nancy Astor um, retorted, you're not good looking enough to have such concerns, Winston. But again, it gives you a sense of the way in which women MPs were treated in Parliament. I think your book does a really good job of demonstrating how those early female MPs, like Nancy Astor, they had to be made of very strong stuff, didn't they? Yes, and Nancy Astor um, certainly was. Um, she was um, she was very strong-willed, uh, strong-minded, and you know she stuck at it for twenty six years, and and she saw a lot of change in in those in those twenty six years. The, the year that she stood down as an MP, twenty four women were elected, and that was something of a of a landslide for women. It was um, a trebling uh, compared with the previous general election. So there was a lot of change while she was uh, an MP. But for almost two years, she was the only woman in the House of uh, Commons. And when Margaret Wintringham was elected, um, just under two years after uh, Astor, although they were from different political parties, they formed a very close uh, relationship. And I think that, um, that that Nancy Astor was probably closer to Wintringham than anyone else in Parliament. And through their uh, whole lives, even after uh, they left Parliament, they continued to correspond. They became very good friends, even though they came from very different backgrounds and had very different political views. Because the truth is, whichever political party you were in, liberal, conservative, Conservative or, or Labour, you were often marginalised and ostracised within your own party. And so you sought friendship and comradeship with the other women in Parliament. And that also happened because a lot of the male MPs, the majority of the male MPs, were members of private members clubs. But at the time, women were excluded, of course, from private members uh, clubs. And so uh, w- women, and even in Parliament, rooms like the smoking room, where MPs uh, went to debate and discuss matters outside of the chamber, was closed to women for the first few years of, of having women in Parliament. So the, the women MPs were confined to the lady members room, which was created in 1918 as a a place for the women MPs to work, to do their correspondence, uh, to, to relax. Uh, but perhaps predictably, it was located down two flights of stairs, about a quarter of a mile from the debating chamber, and was nicknamed by the women MPs as the dungeon. And again, it gives you a sense of the circumstances in which women MPs were expected uh, uh, to, to work. But it was in the lady members' room that a lot of these friendships across the political divide um, were, were formed. There's a wonderful story that once Barbara Castle and, and Jenny Lee, uh, two Labour MPs, um, once danced a can-can on one of the desks in the uh, in the House of in the House of Commons uh, Lady Members Room, which uh, must have been a sight to be seen. As well as the entrenched traditions and and even the architecture of Parliament, as you say, kind of worked against women in the early years. There are some really shocking stories of 
over sexism in your book. Could you give us some examples? Yes, just one story, which is not um, about the sort of physical structure of Parliament. It was a story about Ellen Wilkinson. Ellen Wilkinson was the second woman to take her seat in the cabinet. She was education secretary under Clement Attlee, and she was just four foot eleven in height. The dispatch box where ministers are supposed to speak from was too tall for Ellen Wilkinson to see over, so she had to stand next to the dispatch box to make her speeches. It's an example of how Parliament was very much designed by men for men and, uh, and, and, and very much neglected um, uh, women in its, its construct and design. But in terms of the, of the sexism, when I was writing the book, uh, a lot of the debate about sexual harassment, Me Too, was uh, unfolding at that time. And I interviewed Shirley Williams uh, for the book, uh, one of the most famous women MPs in, in history. And she told me this story that one evening when she was walking through the division lobbies, um, MPs were pinching her bottom. And she told the other women MPs about this and they said, oh, it happens to us all the time. And so they plotted their plan of revenge. And the next evening in the division lobbies, the women MPs wore stiletto heels and were sure to uh, dig them into the uh, feet of any man who dared to pinch their bottoms. And later that evening, they were in the tea room and one man was sort of hobbling um, and the women MPs gathered around him and fussing and feigning concern. It's only gout, he told them. Uh, but they knew the real reason for the pains in, in his foot. And, you know, that's just one example of how women MPs were treated like second-class MPs in, in many ways in, in Parliament. Another woman I interviewed for the book was Shelley Summerskill, who was a Labour a member of Parliament in Halifax from the 60s until the 1980s. And she told me the story of one evening in Parliament, she was walking down a corridor and a male MP who she was talking to then stroked her hair and she asked him not to do that and he said it was just a gesture of friendship she replied do you stroke Harold Wilson's hair and uh, and she said to me my understanding is that I should have reported this sort of behavior to the whip's office is that right Rachel I said yes I, I think so and she said the problem is Rachel it was the chief whip <laughs> uh, and you can sort of laugh at these stories now but this is the sort of stuff that women MPs had to put up with pretty much all the time. Now, things have improved hugely today. But, you know, when I first got elected, just nine years ago in 2010, I went down, I was told I could get a spouse's pass for my then fiancé. And so I went to the pass office to collect it. And the man behind the office said, uh, the desk said, well, you must be very excited. And I was sort of, well, yes, I guess so. Uh, and he said, has your husband just been elected? And I had to correct him that, in fact, it was me who was the Member of Parliament. But there's so many stories like that, even today. Uh, Dawn Butler, who is Labour's Women and Equality spokesperson now, um, she was mistaken for a cleaner in the House of Commons. Now, she's a black woman. I can't imagine a white male MP being mistaken in the House of Commons for a cleaner or indeed, actually, a white woman MP. And so these issues of both misogyny, but also a, a sort of casual racism, I still think are quite common in politics today. It raises an interesting point that, um, of course, after Astor was the first woman to take a seat in 1919, it took up until 1987 for the first female black MP, Diane Abbott, to be elected. Why do you think that it took such a long time? 
1987, three um, 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 black MPs were uh, elected um, that year, uh, Bernie Grant, um, Paul Boateng and, and Diane Abbott. So, you know, it took a long time for any black MPs to be um, elected. But yes, Diane Abbott was the first black woman to be elected to parliament. Of course, she's still there today. At the last general election, I think she has received something like a quarter of the abuse of all MPs on social media. And certainly, I think women are something like four times um, more likely to be the victims of abuse on social media as, as, as MPs compared to the, our male uh, counterparts. And if you are um, a, a black or minority ethnic uh, woman MP, or indeed if you're a Jewish woman MP, that uh, abuse is, is amplified. And, and certainly when I interviewed Diane Abbott for the book, you know, she sort of spoke about the impact that it has on her, but also on on her staff. Rushnara Ali, the first one of the first three Muslim women to be elected in 2010, she says that sometimes she feels reluctant to speak out about the sort of abuse that she faces because she doesn't want to put off a future generation of women putting themselves forward for politics. And, you know, in the early years, there were many barriers for women putting themselves forward and getting elected as MPs. I think one of the biggest barriers today, which we should be mindful of, is the sort of abuse that women MPs get. And I do worry that that will deter people, good people, from putting themselves forward for elected office. Why do you think that over the last century there has been such opposition to women? I think there is this issue about um, some people feeling uncomfortable with um, um, women with strong views and, and and speaking out. And the abuse of women MPs is an attempt to silence women. And that those attempts have been made over you know, decades, centuries. Uh, women winning the vote was about ensuring our voices were heard. Women taking their seats in Parliament was about ensuring the representation of, of women and women's voices being heard. I think it's a real shame that 100 years later, some people still have an issue with that. Um, at the very beginning of the interview, you spoke about women bringing women's issues, in quote marks, to the forefront um, as MPs. Can you give us some examples of that? Well, I gave the example about the equal guardianship of children. Perhaps the most famous example is the issue of equal pay. And of course, that will forever be associated with Barbara Castle and, and the Dagenham Ford workers. But as a couple of decades before, in the 1940s, a group of cross-party women MPs, including um, Mavis Tate, Irene Ward and Thelma Kasselet-Kia for the Conservatives and Edith Summerskill for uh, for Labour, were campaigning on these issues. In fact, the only vote that um, Winston Churchill's national government during the Second World War lost was an amendment on equal pay tabled by the Conservative MP Thelma Kasselet-Kia. Now, Winston Churchill then bought this back two weeks later and turned it into a confidence vote, which he won. Um, but the issue of equal pay is one that women had been raising over um, many years before we actually secured that legislation, the Equal Pay Act, in 1970. And Barbara Castle paid tribute to Castellet Kia in the speech where she introduced um, equal pay in Parliament. And I think that um, that, that, was, that was right. And there is a, a wonderful history, I think, of cross-party working um, of, of women um, over the the last 100 years to put issues on the agenda and to drive change. Another example would be family allowances and child benefit. Eleanor Rathbone, who not nearly enough people have heard of, but really a remarkable woman, an MP in the 20s, 30s, until 1946 when she died uh, in office in her in her 70s. She wrote a, a book in the 1920s called The Disinherited 
family. And she spoke about women being disinherited from the family income because women's work was not rewarded um, financially, um, childcare, housework, etc. And she um, campaigned and lobbied for a family allowance to be paid directly to the woman uh, in recognition of the unpaid work that she did in the in the home. And that was eventually bought in in the in the 1940s. But she worked across the political spectrum to um, to bring support for, for that. And she was absolutely determined that was a benefit that was paid to the mother. When the Conservatives introduced legislation for um, family allowances, they proposed it was to be paid directly to the father. And she made this wonderful speech in Parliament. She said that she had campaigned for this thing for her whole life, but she would not be able to vote for it at the third reading uh, unless it was changed. And it was changed. It was amended by Parliament uh, and, and, and it was paid directly to the mother. But exactly the same battle happened about child benefits in the 1960s and 70s when uh, Barbara Castle introduced the first ever child benefits. And again, the original proposal for the Treasury was that it was paid to the father and Barbara Castle insisted that the payment was to the mother. The same happened in the late 1990s when the new Labour government introduced uh, working tax credits and family tax credits. Again, the proposal was that it was going to the main earner and not the main carer. It took women in Parliament, in that case, women like Harriet Harman and Yvette Cooper to lobby the Treasury, to lobby ministers to ensure that women and children um, got that benefit. And unfortunately, that debate was not one on universal credit, and that is a benefit that is paid to the main earner and not the main carer. But having women in Parliament, I think, has created a sisterhood of cheerleaders for issues that were previously neglected. Obviously, the role of women MPs in issues such as that it has been invaluable. But do you think there's also been a pressure placed on female MPs to only focus on, quote, women's issues? I think it has been a, a dilemma over the last 100 years. Nancy Astor received two to 3,000 letters a week from women across the country because they regarded her as their MP, even if they weren't constituents of hers in Plymouth, because she was the only woman she they thought that she would be the person who understood their issues. Uh, Ellen Wilkinson, a minister under Clement Attlee, said that sometimes she felt like she was the, minister, the uh, member for widows rather than the member for Middlesbrough because she campaigned on the issue of widows' pensions and then received correspondence from women across the country on those, those issues. And because a lot of these issues had been neglected, women in Parliament made them their causes. But, you know, you also had um, Herbert Morrison, former deputy leader of the Labour Party, former uh, Home Secretary, who advised women in 1945 to stick to women's issues. And he was very annoyed with the Labour MP, Lena Jager, who made her maiden speech on foreign and defence policy. Uh, but, you know, we still haven't had a woman defence secretary. We still haven't had a woman chancellor of the Exchequer. We've had two women prime ministers, but two in 100 years isn't that many. And we've had one woman speaker. So, we're making progress, but it is still more likely that women are appointed to roles which are regarded as, in quotes, women's issues, international development, uh, health, education, welfare policy, rather than the defence and the, and the, the, the treasury uh, issues. But it has been a dilemma on what issues to, to focus on as, as women MPs. And of course, women have got views on every single subject under um, the sun. But because a lot of issues that directly affect the lives of women outside politics have been neglected, women have also felt a, 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 a need and a desire to, to be cheerleaders and spokespeople for those issues. There are two things that are absolutely true. 
Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. You've spoken quite a lot about women working in cross-party allegiances. Do you think that women MPs are especially open to working um, across party divides? And if so, why? I think in the early years, a lot of that happened because women were forced together. Uh, They were forced together because of the attitudes of other men in Parliament who didn't really want them there. And so they found that friendship and and solidarity with the other women in Parliament and because they were confined to the lady members' room where they did stick together. So I think it was inevitable in those, those early years. But you still see today... So many examples of cross-party working of, of women MPs. Uh, I think Jo Cox summed it up really well in her maiden speech where she said, we have more in common than that which divides us. And I think that has been the motto of many women in Parliament, that they try and find uh, uh, people across the political spectrum who they can work with and try and build those alliances. And on all those examples on on child benefit, equal pay, the equal guardianship of uh, children, um, on reproductive uh, rights, women have worked together across the political spectrum to drive change to improve the lives of, of women outside of, of Parliament. And I personally feel we need more of that cross-party working and more of that trying to find a common good and consensus in politics uh, today. We can't have this conversation without, of course, speaking about Margaret Thatcher. Um, how much of a game changer do you think it was when Thatcher became Prime Minister in 1979? Well, I'm a Labour member of Parliament, and one of the reasons I joined the Labour Party was because I disagreed with what she was doing in the country. But when Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister, I was just three months old, and I grew up, you know, in her shadow in in many ways. And although I knew I disagreed with the direction she was taking the country in, I never doubted as a woman could lead and be Prime Minister because there she was doing that. And so I do think that she was a role model for uh, young uh, women and girls growing up in the 1980s and and 1990s. And I'm sure that it politicised a a lot of people, especially um, uh, women, who suddenly saw a woman in that role and thought, you know, maybe one day I could do something like that or this is not just a job for boys. Women can do it just as good as as the men can. But, you know, Margaret Thatcher, although she's sort of, you know, known for not having promoted um, other women and um, in the whole time that she was prime minister, only one other woman served in her cabinet and she was in the House of Lords and didn't last very long. You know, the truth is Margaret Thatcher faced a huge amount of um, misogyny and, and and people underestimating her in the years leading up to her becoming an MP. And then when she was a member of parliament, she went for many selections to be a Conservative candidate before she was eventually selected in Finchley and Golders Green. When she went for selection in uh, Maidstone, the feedback from the local party was that she uh, was very talented, but she hadn't thought sufficiently about how she was going to combine being a mother and a member of parliament. And you just can't imagine uh, a man being told that he hadn't thought sufficiently about how he was going to combine being a father and a member of parliament. And so Margaret Thatcher very almost didn't become a member of parliament because of the attitudes of men in her party. Once she was leader of the opposition um, in the mid-1970s, Harold Wilson once referred to her as my dear in the debating chamber. The Labour Party hugely underestimated Margaret Thatcher uh, and to their peril, it turned out. How significant or important do you think it is that 
our prime minister at the moment, Theresa May, is a woman. Well, I, I've got two young children and you know, my daughter, who's just six years old, knows that Theresa May is, is prime minister and that we have a woman as prime minister. And again, although I disagree, especially with what she is doing in, in terms of, of, of Brexit, she is undoubtedly a role model for, for women. And as Home Secretary, she did prioritise a lot of issues that affect women and girls. When I interviewed her for the book, I asked her what her proudest achievement was as Home Secretary. And, and she spoke passionately about the work she had done on modern day slavery and, and human trafficking. And she spoke about it uh, in terms of the exploitation of, of women and children. And so it's something that she cares hugely about. And in her own party, she set up Women to Win in the Conservative Party to try and get more women to become candidates and members of parliament in the Conservative Party. She was a moderniser in the Conservative Party before many others uh, were. So in many ways, she has a, a good story to tell and a proud record. And she, unlike Margaret Thatcher, defines herself as a feminist. We've spoken about a lot of different women over the course of this interview. And you spoke to a lot of different impressive women for your book. Who were some of the women that you were personally most inspired by? So... Uh, you know, so many. Let me give a couple of examples. Margaret Bonfield. Margaret Bonfield was the first woman ever to be appointed to the cabinet. And this year is the 90th anniversary of, of that event. On the 8th of June, 1929, Margaret Bonfield became a cabinet minister. And she was born you know, well before women had the vote or the chance to, to stand for elected office. She left school at 14 and moved from Chard in Somerset, where she grew up, to Brighton and then to London, where she worked in shops. She worked as a tailor's assistant at a shop in Hove. And it was when she was doing that job that one evening her dinner of chips was wrapped in a newspaper and in the newspaper there was an advert for the shop workers union. She joined that union. She went on to become its assistant general secretary. She was the first ever woman to speak at Trades Union Congress. She became the first Labour woman MP in 1923 and the first woman to be appointed to the cabinet in 1929. And who would have imagined somebody from humble beginnings at a time when women didn't even have the right to vote would go on to be a cabinet minister? I think she was a really remarkable um, woman. I would also say Eleanor Rathbone. She was not in a political party. She was a, a suffragist, a friend of um, Millicent Fawcett, and she became an independent member of parliament. And she used that status as an independent MP to build coalitions across the political spectrum, whether it was on family allowances or campaigning um, uh, against fascism in, in Europe, in, in Spain, and then in Germany, to, for Britain to take refugees during the Second World War. And she used her status as an independent MP to build those alliances and, and coalitions, working with um, the Labour Member of Parliament, Ellen Wilkinson, and the Conservative, the Duchess of Athol. Three women from very different backgrounds, very different political uh, opinions, working together to achieve real change. So Eleanor Rathbone and, and Margaret Bonfield would be two of, two of my heroes. And I guess going into the book, Barbara Castle uh, was the woman who... Uh, I wish she had been Prime Minister. I wish she had been our first woman um, Prime Minister. And it is still a source of huge shame to my party, the Labour Party, that we have not yet elected a woman leader, let alone had a woman Prime Minister from the Labour Party. What's it like to be a female MP in 2019? And what do you hope the future holds? Well, when I was elected in 2010, uh, just over 20% of 
MPs were women. Today, it's almost a third. So there's been a, a change even in the nine years that I've been um, a parliamentarian. And that's a great thing. But at the current rate of progress, it's going to take another 50 years um, before we have equal representation of, of men and women in parliament. I want that change to come a lot sooner because at the moment we're missing out on a huge amount of talent when we choose from a very narrow pool of people to be our members of parliament and we neglect the talent of the women out there who have got so much to bring to politics. So I hope that we achieve that equality in politics but because I want to achieve greater equality in the country. And at the moment, we still have a gender pay gap. You're still more likely to be the victim of domestic uh, violence. If you are a, a woman, you are likely to, uh, to to own less, to have less uh, uh, wealth, um, and to do more of the housework and the childcare if you're a woman. So I would like to see equality in Parliament because I want to see equality in the country, and I hope that we achieve that in my political lifetime. <laughs> That was Rachel Reeves. Rachel's book, Women of Westminster, The MPs Who Changed Politics, is out now, published by IB Taurus. For more on political or women's history, as well as a wealth of other podcasts and articles, why not visit our website, historyextra.com, where you can also find out more about subscribing to BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Monday with a debate about the church versus the state in Tudor, England. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library. <laughs>